Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. WCW was doing small business with big names. You listen to Eric and Conrad talk about Uncensored 2000. Now hang out with us. This is After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. That's me. I'm Maria Menunos, and you're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz begin. Hello, 83 Weeks fans. Welcome to the show that is just for you, and it's all yours. We are covering 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, Uncensored 2000, and we are all here tonight. Eric will be joining us live to answer your questions. I do have the live chat rolling. You guys are already there partying, and I want to welcome my co-host for the evening. Steve Kaufman, are you with me? I am with you. Thank you so much. That We have nothing in the audio. That's I didn't realize how important that is until right now. Oh, there's no music. No. We're we're rolling. We're doing good things. And we have George Hermosa along with us. Hi, George. Hello there. I I am always and forever with you guys, much like Heat Wave. Oh, I love that. Wow. I can't see you, but I know you're making a dopey expression at that great joke you just made. Two thumbs Uh, up. And of course, joining us tonight as well, as always, is the man of the hour. You know him as the former president of EP of WCW, the former executive director of SmackDown Live, author, producer, and just guy we love to kick back and chat with a little bit. Hello, Eric Bischoff. How are you? I thought you were going to say just a guy you'd like to kick in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> that was next, actually, but you know, it felt a little long, so I cut it off. Uh, thank you, Eric, for tuning in with us again tonight. I can assume you didn't have a whole lot else to do, but I am dying to hear how you are handling this whole quarantine thing how are you keeping busy um well i still you know i still have work to do um i keep waiting for people to drop money off at my doorstep for no reason it just doesn't happen so i gotta go out and make that actually uh conrad and i did a podcast this morning um where we really zeroed in on sting uh it was about three hours long pretty sure uh, and it's going to drop on Monday, so uh, it's going to be a good one. I really had fun doing. Ooh, that's exciting! When you do a show like that, do you, are you already thinking in your head? There's some stuff you said that you know is going to make news, or that people are going to really latch on to. Like, do you kind of prepare yourself for that? Um, I mean, you should know me well enough by now. After doing this, the shit that I say just rolls out of my mouth, and I don't think about it too much. You know, I kind of I, I go with a stream of consciousness and try to be as, as detail as oriented or as detail oriented as I can be, and, and as factual as I can possibly be, given the fact that I'm talking about shit that's 20 or 25 years old. Um, but I also know that during the course of all that, I often say things in my zeal for doing podcasts and. Um, depending on the subject matter, my reaction to it, that I, I don't know, oh, God, I'm going to hear about that. But, yeah, it happens. It makes the show entertaining. 
It is. Well, this episode this week on Uncensored 2000 was an especially good one. And I want to take a chance right now to shout out all the people, all your fans that have listened to your show in the live chat. Hello to RJ and Chaz and DM Benzilla, Nick, Teddy, all the usual suspects are there. Francis, Michael, Ben, you guys get your questions rolling, tap them right in there. And we will make sure we ask them of Eric. So while you all get going on that, I am sure Stephen George, you have some great questions for Eric. Yes. I like to think that I do, but we'll find out. Uh, I mean, if anything, the first one isn't so much a question, more so maybe praise just because, and I'm not always the one to blow smoke, but you said something in the beginning or toward the earlier the episode where you kind of mentioned Hogan and Flair. Oh my God, I was one of those guys where year 2000, I'm like, again, Hogan and Flair. But then you kind of mentioned like Robert De Niro. And I kind of th uh, thought of like him and Al Pacino where we saw them like in Godfather Part Two. But then we didn't see them again until like Heat. And then we saw them recently in The Irishman where it doesn't really matter about the actual like, oh, whether we saw it 10 or 15 years ago. But the story has got to be right. And it kind of made me open up my eyes up a little bit more where even look at today where Edge Norton, when I first heard that they were going to uh, be at Mania together. I'm like, oh, I saw this like 16 years. Eric was GM when we saw them feud on, on Monday Night Raw. But then even now, it's like the best thing on WWE today. Where And, and I kind of want to just praise you for kind of opening up my eyes where it doesn't really matter who's there. But as long as the story is there, it, it's going to be good. Yeah, and, and that's the challenge. And I think that's probably, um, you know, I always use these metaphors or examples. And I'm not sure why because it's not my world. But I think, you know, when an actor reaches a certain point in his or her career um, of success, I think that's one of the reasons why they have managers and, and agents who really help guide them through their next project. Because the last thing that you – well, I shouldn't say the last thing you want to do. I guess it's a great thing to have happen to you. But if you get, you know, pigeonholed or um, stuck with a certain type of character that you could never get away from – you know, the number of movies that you're going to be able to do in your career is going to be limited or the success of those movies, which is the same thing, is going to limit your career. Whereas if you carefully pick the right characters and the right scripts where you know you can bring your strength to it, but it feels completely different than the movie you did last time, mm -hmm. I think that's part of the key to longevity. And I think you're right, George. There's a probably a, a way to more um, uh, deliberately kind of be aware of that. And, and, and thinking about what possible storylines could be. Because I'll be honest with you, I, I'm, I've been guilty of this. It's like, oh, no, I've seen it before. Oh. Well, why not figure out a way to wrap it up and make it look completely different than it was before? Oh. And I never really thought that way until I started talking about things in retrospect, like we did on Uncensored. Um, speaking of the end of folks' careers. Terry Funk was on Uncensored 2000, and I guess, I guess it's a two-part question. Do you believe Terry Funk was going to stay retired in the late 90s? <laughs> no. <laughs> Do I believe and Kiss is actually going to retire this time, <laughs> even though they announced it in 1999 or 98? They've been on a perpetual you know, re retirement tour and farewell tour. No, fuck no. I never believe when any wrestler says they're going to retire. And, and, and I say that with so much respect because, you know, the people that have – the fortunate few who have been able to make a living in professional wrestling throughout their entire adult life, starting at 18, 19, 20 years old, breaking into the business. And we're talking about guys like, you know, Dor or Terry and Dory Funk and Dusty Rhodes and, you know, wrestlers of that era. You know, it wasn't like today. 
you know, some of them made good money, but a lot of them were barely breaking in. Even in the the life they lived was just amazingly different from the way, you know, some of the top stars, even mid-level stars live today and work. So um, those guys, I'm sorry, I just got off track. I was thinking about something else. Question. (laughs) The follow-up was. Oh, did I think he was going to retire? Those guys and people like them, even younger, even younger guys and people like through all of the generations of wrestling. When you've spent your entire adult life doing it, you miss it, and there's it. You get a rush performing in the ring, and I was never a wrestler, and I don't put myself in the same category as guys like Dusty Rhodes and Terry Funk and the rest of the names I mentioned, or Ric Flair or Hulk Hogan or anybody else, anybody else. Not even the same category as the guys that gals that are in NXT, all right? That being said, I've had enough time in the ring with those guys in front of a crowd to get a sense of what that does to you. And it's very addictive. It's very addictive. That's why they have such a hard time giving up. It's why the Rolling Stones still tour to this day. I'm supposed to go May 16th in Minneapolis, but it was canceled. Uh, Yeah, it's a bucket list thing for me. But they're not touring because they need the money. Terry Funk isn't necessarily, if he ever does get in the ring again, or any of the people in that category. The Undertaker is not doing it for the money. He's doing it for the rush. Hulk Hogan, who I've talked to at length about this type of thing, he doesn't need the money. If he was able to, he's not really able to right now, and I'm not sure he will be. But if he was able to, if, if he got a call tonight and said, hey, be here Monday, and he was capable of doing it, he'd do it in a heartbeat, not for the money, for the bam that you can't get anywhere else. Then I guess the quick follow-up is, did you ever have doubts that Terry Funk couldn't or shouldn't perform at the level he would want to? He would want to? Well, that's up to Terry Funk. You know that? And that's a really good question slash observation. There were times, and again, I'll talk about Hulk Hogan, um, because I was closer to him than I was most talent. And there were times when I I would very subtly, carefully try to talk to Hulk about less is more. Because at a certain point, even though the talent, and I, I understand this, it, it's just the way our brains work as performers and males in particular, um, because of our egos, um, our brains still think we can do things that our body can't. And you can, you can get away with it for a while. You can cheat it. You can do things a little differently. But over time, those little cheats add up to a presentation that will live up to your expectation or the audience's. But you kind of do it anyway because you got this addiction, right? And I think that, you know, there's a lot of guys who had to adapt you know, like Ric Flair, like you know, Hulk Hogan and everybody else, you know, that falls into that category, all have to adapt. And I'm sure in their minds, they walk out of the ring knowing, God, it wasn't what it used to be. But it, it, they're overcome by their need to go out there and perform. Yeah. Wow. It's kind of a fascinating phenomenon. And Going off of that, Eric, you know, the WWE has made a lot of the WWE network available for free right now uh, to fans because of what we're all dealing with. What are some of the your favorite 
old matches to watch or old shows or what are something that you can suggest to fans to make sure they go back and watch maybe if they've never seen before just to give another look at do you have some kind of top network picks from back in the day I really don't. You know, for obvious reasons, I like to go back and watch AWA stuff. Um, just because yeah, I grew up with that, you know, the early stuff, like in the early 70s, mid-70s. It was all stuff that I grew up with in, in late 70s and 80s to a lesser extent because by the end of the 80s, I was working there. But that's, that's, that was my stuff, you know. That's my, that's my macaroni and cheese kind of wrestling comfort food. Um, so I'll go back and I'll drop in on that. But I'll also go back. And I love, again, it's me. You know, we're all different. Somebody asked me a question on Twitter the other day, or it was actually last night, about, you know, what era of, you know, professional wrestling I thought was the most important. What, what was my version of the golden era of professional wrestling? I said, they're all golden eras. Because depending on how old you are and what stage of life you are and what your friends are interested in, you know, the business has all affected us at different levels and different ages. And wherever it has its biggest impact on you is generally what you're going to look back at and say, well, that was the best era of professional wrestling, right? It's all subjective. And everybody is absolutely correct. For me personally, I like to go back and look at some of the 70s and early 80s stuff. Because it that's when, and I'm sure it was true in the 60s, but I just wasn't as aware of it. That's when, to me, things really started to change, especially once you got into the early 80s. The characters changed. The presentation changed. The way heels cut their promos changed. Um, and and it's just like, not overnight, but you could, you could start to see the evolution of the sport as it started to – or the business – as it started to adapt more and more and more to television as television and the television audience was beginning to expand and expand, especially once cable hit in the seventies. So that whole era of late sixties, seventies, for sure. Eighties. Absolutely. That whole era. It, it's fun to go back and watch and see things you, I've never seen before or see talent that I've always heard stories about that I've never really got familiar with because they were, you know, in the Portland territory or in Memphis. So I, you know, cause I learn, you know, you, you, and you also learn to appreciate different things, but I'm, if I had one, that I had to pick, it would be AWA stuff. And for all, that's obvious. That's the good stuff. Well, I wish we had our all of our bells and whistles today because cha-ching, ching, ching, we have a super chat question from Ken, terminated by Google, paying you five bucks, Eric, to answer this question. Uh, and he wants to know, actually, have any of us, including you, Eric, watched the Dark Side episode about Chris Benoit? He said, I know that Eric said he didn't have a close relationship with Chris, but um, Ken is wondering, Eric, did you have a chance to take in the episode, and what did you think? I have not yet. I fully intend to, but th that's something that, you know, if I'm going to sit down and watch something like that, uh, I need to do it alone. Um, Mrs. B and our daughter Montana is probably not going to be too into it, and I really don't sit and watch television until it's, you know, right before I'm ready to go to bed. So and I usually do that with Lori in, in Montana now that she's here. So I haven't seen it yet. I probably will this weekend because I'm getting a lot. And obviously I'm interested, you know. Yeah. I didn't know Chris well. Um, certainly we were, you know, professionally we were very friendly. And I would say superficially we were friends. But we didn't go out after work or talk outside of the business. So we were friendly but not friends is the way I would put that. Uh, so I, I didn't 
you know, I didn't know him well. I, I, I couldn't have contributed any contributed anything to that documentary, but I'm fascinated to hear what guys like Chris Jericho and others who were very close to Chris Benoit have to say. So I'm, I'm fully intending to see it, but I haven't seen it yet. Also excellent filmmaking on that documentary. They're doing yeah, a great Jericho's really a standout, but I thought it was very well done. Yeah, they're doing such a great job. I've had a chance to work with them now a couple times on a couple different of their couple different series that they've done and or specials, and it's it's a it's been a pleasure and it's really fun to watch it back. And if anybody yeah. didn't catch it or didn't DVR it, it is available for free on Vice's YouTube channel. So guys, make sure you go ahead and watch that back. And kind of going off of that, Eric. Maurice in the chat, he says, hello, and he wants to know if you were employed by WWE, would you sign Chris Benoit Jr. to a contract? So I think maybe um, you can just sort of answer, Eric, about the politics of maybe signing him right now or um, what advice you would maybe give to him at this time. I I don't want to reference any politics because I, I don't know what the politics are. You, specifically, you asked WWE. I think he'd be. First of all, I think he would be far better served to go to AEW than he would to WWE. But in either case, if either of those opportunities became available, if I were managing David, I would really think hard about getting into the ring and making that choice because it's. Look, being the son of a wrestler, being the son of a star in, in this business puts so much pressure on you, way more than the pressure that's on the average person. You take two people of equal talent, equal potential. Everything is equal. Genetically, they're equal and almost identical except for birth parents, right? You put them through the same life experiences. You give them the same opportunities. You put them both into a wrestling environment to give them a chance to be a star. They will both accelerate in this example at the exact same pace and same levels. And the son of, of a star or daughter, as the case may be, uh, of, a, of a star, an established star, a big name, versus the son of a uh, someone who's coming in with no baggage or help, I would bet on. I would bet against the son or daughter of a star every single time. The pressure is probably two or threefold in your own mind, and also you know what the fans put on because it's a little bit like you know they don't like nepotism. Wrestling fans are really many of them of the core, the hardcore are. They're extremely loyal, but if they think that a talent is getting in because of his or her last name or any kind of special opportunity, that specific talent, that particular talent, has to work two, two or three times harder than anybody else just because of that business. So I, I would try to talk them out of it. It's like I did. I, I gave my my own son the same speech. It was, I much more detail, by the way. Because uh, he had even a bigger burden because his last name was same as mine. He w- wasn't just the son of somebody in the wrestling business. He was the son of me in the wrestling business. Um, but it's really tough. So I'd advise against it. But if he made that choice, if he had that choice, I would steer him towards AEW for obvious reasons. 
Have you and your son, your son ever talked about that conversation now? Has he ever said like, hey, dad, thanks for telling me not to do it or yeah. any other kind of sentiments? No, I mean, look, I don't want to speak for Garrett or, or put his feelings in any kind of context because he and I haven't talked about it now for a, a long time, a couple of years. I, you know, it was his dream, you know, to get in the ring and, and to work with me. You know, to not necessarily in the ring with me, but to be in the business with me. That was his like childhood dream growing up. I didn't really realize that till we had that conversation when he was about 18 or 19 or 20, somewhere in there. Um, my dad is a dad, I guess. But um, when we did have it, you know, I, I was just brutally honest with him. You know, I was clinical about it. Um, and, and he got his opportunity, and I think he was very satisfied in a lot of ways. I think he fulfilled. You know, he got to work with me, which was his original goal, right? Um, I exposed him to all areas of the business. I wanted him to learn it. I, he went to wrestling school, Rikishi's wrestling school out in Los Angeles, moved out, out to L.A., lived in L.A. for quite a while, training there, and then moved to Florida to train with Hulk and, and Brian Nobbs and a crew of guys down there when Brian Nobbs had his wrestling school. It was a good school, by the way. Um, so when it was time for him to break into the business, I said, okay, you know, you're not going to come in as, you know, Gary Bischoff. You're going to come in as a referee. We're going to give you a gimmick name. And I actually, I never associated with the backstage. When we were on this location at TNA, um, if I saw him coming towards me, you know, towards one of the sound stages, whatever, I'd avoid him or he'd avoid me. Nobody really saw us together in the beginning, you know, before he was revealed, right, as, as my son. But in the very beginning, when he was a referee, he couldn't ride with me, couldn't be seen in a hotel with me. None of that stuff. We gave fame. And it's not that people didn't know. It was I wanted him to learn the respect that way. That would teach him to have a certain amount of respect for the business and not just expose everything before, he's real, before he really understood or had a chance to begin to understand the business. But then I exposed him. I let him sit in the writer's room. You know, I said I'm li- I let him sit in our TV meetings before our, our shoots. And then, of course, we ended up working together. So I think his career was, for him, he probably scratched that itch or checked that box. Um, and, but it was time for him to get out, you know, for a couple of different reasons. And I think he's, he's okay with it. I think deep down inside, I'm sure he has thoughts from time to time. Like, God, what if I would have just gone to WWE? I don't blame him for having those thoughts, but I'm glad he didn't. Uh, another uh, super chat here. Uh, Geek Core said, "Were you pissed when you saw DX rip off the NWO?" I think they're meaning Degeneration X in general. Um, no, I wasn't pissed at all. I was flattered to a degree, and I, and I don't mean that in a braggadocious way. I mean, I I went, "Wow!" They, you know, when somebody reacts to you and what you're doing in a way that is kind of a replica, at least of the formula. You acknowledge it. I acknowledge it. And I was deep down inside kind of flattered. I, I forced them to change their business. That's kind of a big win, especially with a guy like Vince McMahon in WWE, to force Vince McMahon to change the way he presented his product. And I'm sure it was a way that he didn't really feel comfortable knowing or thinking I, uh, that I know Vince the way I know Vince, that presentation was not something that I think he felt deep down inside good about. It wasn't 
It was a natural thing. So, yeah, I took a certain amount of pleasure in that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Uh, as, as far as uh, last night on AEW, we saw a vignette with now known as Brody Lee, but he was Luke Harper in WWE. Uh, he kind of threw a couple jabs at Vince McMahon. Uh, my question more so is, is there a fine line between throwing jabs, especially if you're a startup like AEW? Uh, I want 95 Bischoff to answer that question and, and 2020 <laughs> Bischoff to answer that question, where it, at what point is too much, you know, too much? Uh, it's really interesting because and I don't know how to start. Well, I do know how to start it. You know, Tony Khan came out and made, you know, he got an opportunity, you know, to, to kind of come out from, you know, underneath Daddy's shadow and, and do a press interview about AEW. And I, you know, I get that. You know, I was about as over the top whenever I would do interviews as just about anybody that's probably been an executive in Turner Broadcasting. And I said a lot of stupid shit, a lot of bombastic stuff just to get attention and to stir the pot. But Tony did an interview, and I don't remember who the reporter was or the, or the trade, where he said, yeah, we're using WCW, and I'm paraphrasing as a model of what not to do. And I said, okay, he's taking a nice little shot there. And I, I understand his need to do that because it's a new young company and he's trying to establish himself. I get all that. I didn't take it personally. But when I go and I watch, I don't sit and watch his whole show or their whole show, but I do watch parts of it or I'll drop in on it. And, you know, from, I mean, the, from the probably 50 or 60% of the production staff behind the camera to the talent in the ring, some of the big name talent, at least in the ring, to their announcers, to the names of some of their pay-per-views, to the fact they're doing two hours live on, on TV. I mean, there's so many similarities in their formula that it, it kind of, you know, I had I felt the need to, you know, I didn't want to take a, I didn't want to hit him with a right hook, but I thought I'd throw a jab. And I did. Well, that started a whole, you know, bunch of shit. And it's okay. You know, it's it's good, you know, entertaining Twitter feed shit. But then, I, and I did drop in last night. It's funny that you asked that question because I, I was thinking about this when I was taking the dog for a hike this morning, this very question. Um, I watched that, that vignette. I actually, I, I, I made a point of watching it. And I liked it. I thought it was really well done. Like very, very well done. And the reason I was so impressed with it is because, George, you mentioned, is there a fine line? They found it. And they straddled it perfectly, like they were laser guided on a razor edge line. They 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 stuck it right, and by that I mean they took those shots right. So if you know Vince, if you've been in the wrestling business, if you've read some of the stories about Vince's particular you know personal traits, if you're really familiar with that, which probably one half of one half of one half of a percent of the audience is. Uh, that are watching, um, you get it, and you you like it, and you go, aha, nice little shot. But let's say you didn't get it, and that vast majority of the audience was sitting there watching this segment that you one might, if you're cynical, assume was only geared to the smart marks, right? Because you'd have to be relatively smart, aware of the industry in general to realize that that was even a, and I won't even call it a parody. I'll call it a shot to even realize that that was a shot of Vince. Because if you don't know Vince's personal characteristics, you wouldn't get that. That thought wouldn't cross your mind. If you do, 
it's a little, it's pretty interesting. But if you fall into that other group, that vignette got him over. It still helped build his character. So they didn't give anything up. You know what I mean? That was one of those types of vignettes that you could do where those who know get it and like it, but you're not doing it at the expense of the vast majority of the audience because that vignette, that vignette was a standalone. It got the character over in, in so many different ways. You know now what this character's thinking because of the way or, or, or the way he treated the two guys he was with. And, and what he thought of himself as a result. So I thought they knocked it out of the park. Simp- not because it, it, was, it wasn't like one of those vignettes you're going to talk about six months from now or a year from now, but it really advanced the story. They checked the box. It's a little inside shot. Those who know, know. And they got it. And they chuckled. Those who don't know, got a really enhanced character. And they advanced his character with that audience. So you're telling me that Vince McMahon will eat a steak before everyone else does? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to comment. You can, you, can, you can plead the fifth. <laughs> I'll plead the fifth. It's not quite like that. It's not quite like that. But well, he will sit down and thought about that. But he will sit down and eat his steak in front of you while you don't have one, which oh. is kind of the same thing. <laughs> Says a lot. Says a lot. And uh, cha-ching, once again, I want to shout out our super chatters in the chat. Lil Boat, hello. And Ken Terminated by Google has another question for you, Eric. He said, do you remember your interview with RF Video? Ken says, I loved it, but did you refuse to talk about TNA because it's like a tough marriage or an ex-girlfriend? Do you liken TNA to an ex, Eric? I guess is what Ken wants to know. No, I liken it to a... I mean, Chrissy, you're from Minnesota. You know what Everclear is all about. Oh, yeah. since, we're, since we were talking about St. Cloud State University right before we went live, one of my earlier earlier really bad college experiences involved, involved Everclear. Let me see who's in the room here. Nope, nobody's in the room with me. <laughs> well, I... I, I'm going to talk real quiet because Mrs. B and Montana are upstairs. But no, I liken it more to one of those nights, one of those horrible nights when you're young and dumb and there's way too much Everclear involved and you wake up the next morning and you want to chew your arm off. <laughs> That's what I think you mean. <laughs> I think we can all relate to that. Wow. That, that's not a relationship. That is a choice. <laughs> and it's not one. That's how that's that's that. Um, Dustin Rhodes was also on this Uncensored 2000 show. And was there any ever anything he would pitch to you creatively that was too far or people would have deemed too far? Not at that time. OK, not at that time. You know, Dusty was, uh, you know, when I, you know, I, I, Dusty was the booker, the head writer, whatever you want to call it, when I got to WCW. And, and he was, uh, he remained in that position as I was kind of coming up the food chain. But it got to the point where it just wasn't working for Dusty. Um, not for me, because I love Dusty. And, and I kept Dusty. I, we found a way to make it work, you know, when Dusty got uncomfortable in the environment he was being asked to work in. And that's really what it was. But it was never like this, you know what I mean? Because we were tight. And I had respect for him. And he had a lot of value to us in many different ways. 
Um, but once Dusty walked away from the creative and kind of handed that off to somebody else, he didn't really want to be involved in it. Now, he, as a talent, an announcer, whatever, supporting cast member, he was all about it. He'd do whatever and throw himself into it and, and try to add to it. But he was he was not – he had no interest in creative when it wasn't his baby. And that's kind of the way Dusty was. I, I was asking about Dustin Rhodes, but yeah. <laughs> oh, Dustin. Dustin, I thought you said Dusty. Uh, rewind the question. I, I was asking specifically if Dustin Rhodes had ever pitched anything to you for his character on WCW no. that had pushed the envelope in any way. No, not that I remember, no. And it's, it's funny because I was pretty friendly with Dustin, too, and, and still am. Um, but, you know, we, we went hunting together out in Wyoming. We went, Dusty and Dustin and Doug Dillinger and myself, my wife. Went all up into the mountains and uh, the Bighorn Mountains outside of Sheridan, Wyoming, and went hunting together. So I, I had a great relationship with Dustin, but he he never really came to me that I can remember, at least, w- with ideas, with something that he was really passionate about. So uh, we've seen a lot of these. Obviously, we all watch Raw, SmackDown. We see what's going on in the world, and this isn't the first time that Raw has had to cancel a show. It was five years ago when they, I think, I want to say they were snowed in. Uh, the day after uh, Royal Rumble 2015. But my question is with Nitro, Thunder, Clash, pay-per-views, were you guys ever close to having to to cancel a Nitro or to you know say, hey, everybody stay home because of, of a big blizzard? And was there ever any plan if that were to ever happen where, all right, you know, we can't have com- uh, people come to Nitro, so we're going to do this instead? Yeah, we... The, the first part of that, uh, the first answer is uh, no. We were never faced with this type of challenge. Now, no weather issues or nothing. This type of challenge, but we've never we were never challenged by weather issues or a any kind of a disaster issue, mm-hmm. any kind or you know nine one nine eleven type of an event. No, none of that ever happened to us. That being said, where you had you know three days or four days or a week or a month cancel shows, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there were times, one in particular, uh, the Sturgis, I think it was the first or second Sturgis pay-per-view that we did. Um, I thought for sure today a tornado was going to hit the entire, the set where we were outside oh, wow. 40 minutes before we were supposed to go live on a pay-per-view. In which case, everybody would have scattered. There would have been nothing there, including the set and everything and the crew and the cameras and everything else. Um, but it, it got so close. We were on the phone. I was a pilot at the time, so I was on a computer trying to check FAA weather because I, to me, that's the most accurate weather you could get. I learned how to interpret it um, to help at least get an idea of what was going on. Um, that was kind of sketchy because things were happening so fast. Local weather, local radio, local television, well, they don't know anything more than the FAA does at the end of the day. So it was, it was sketchy, and we had one guy there that had a um, computer that had a monitor on it, or a, a big monitor, where we could actually watch the storm rolling in and the, the thunderclouds coming in. And they were within a quarter of a mile from us when the winds all shifted and everything went the other way, and we were able to keep going. But that was like by the skin of our teeth. Oh, wow. I never knew that. That's crazy. It was uh, like there, there was – there was softball size hail coming down hard, 
And you keep in mind, everybody was around the ring on their motorcycles. We're outdoors. There was no place to hide. There was no roofs over anything. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Uh, Tom in the chat would like to know, Eric, have you and Hulk ever considered the possibility, with the help of Ric Flair, of starting your own wrestling entity? So really, even ever just a drunken conversation one night, <laughs> did Hulk ever consider starting your own promotion? <laughs> no, there's not enough liquor <laughs> to even get the conversation started. We would all pass out first. But the, no, none of those guys, including yourself, have any. There's no like, oh man, I watched it. I watched TV and it sucked so much. As oh, I watched TV, I fast forward and then got over it. No, I mean, look. I, I guess I should have answered that question differently. If, if in the last five years, no, but there was a point, you know, because of different opportunities that kind of came our way. Hulk and I did take a couple of different meetings. We took one with Fox a long time ago, uh, Fox sports. Uh, we took one with a group in Las Vegas, some very successful venture capitalists who were quite interested, but those were like 15 years ago or so, 12 um, since then, no, there's never been a conversation. And oh. what happened to those conversations? <laughs> I'm sorry? And what happened in those conversations? Uh, you know, it's just too much time for investors to get comfortable with. Unless you've got a personal involvement in it, as I'm sure... Tony Khan does, you know, obviously the McMahon family, Ted Turner had his own reasons for doing it. You have to be really, really committed for the long term. And most investors, the, the investors, for example, in, in Las Vegas that we met, they had more, they had enough money. It wasn't a question of money. There were hundreds of millions of dollars available. But when you start talking about how long it's going to take to get a return on that investment, because it's not like going into business where you're going to become a car tire manufacturer or you're going to develop software or you're going to do anything else that generally has about an 18 month or 24 month kind of gestation period before you can start becoming successful or at least looking like it's going to get successful. The wrestling industry takes a long time, a long time. And it's very complicated. And once you start really looking at the trajectory of the financial models and how long it's going to take to get a, ring, a return on your investment, most venture capitalists are going to go for something like real estate or commodities or things that just have a quicker turnaround because they don't like their money sitting around. I think that explains why there's not much venture capital in wrestling. Huh? No, that's huh. what I, yeah, and that's why, I mean, you know, commentary about, you know, Tony Khan and, his shots at me aside or WCW, I'm, I'm thrilled to death for the industry as a whole, um, for the people who I know that work there, whether they're friends of mine or not. Um, grateful because it's really hard when you've spent your life in the wrestling industry to go out and find a way to make it an equal or greater living outside in the quote unquote real world or civilian world. So when, Somebody comes along like the Khan family who are willing to invest, who don't have, who aren't looking at their calculators and their calendars going, wait a minute, if I don't get a, you know, at least a 7%, you know, ROI on this investment by year three, I'm in trouble. And, you know, that's a ridiculous kind of pressure to work under. So I'm very grateful and happy that 
AEW's up and running and they're not looking at their watch, hopefully. I don't know this for a fact. I'm assuming because they're smart people. Um, they've got a long-term vision, and that's hard to find in the VC world, in the venture capital world. Interesting. I got I got one last question for me, at least for me. Um, I know you weren't there. I know you know I know you weren't in charge, but I know they were in Miami, Florida, for Uncensored 2000. So, what in the blue hell would uh, have them come up with a Yappa Pie strap match? Would South Beach strap match not good enough or something? Why Yappa Yappa Pie? I know I, I like when Hogan said Yappa Pie strap match, brother. I mean, maybe that's why. Well, here's what's funny. It's you're not Yappa Pie. And it's Yavapai with a V. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and it's an actual, you know, it's an indigenous tribe, in, in Native American tribe in the central central part of Arizona, southwest part of Arizona. They kind of commingled with the Apaches and, and a couple other tribes in Arizona. But they were very, um, a lot of their home turf, I guess, as you would call it, um, was in the area that I used to live in, in tremendous amount of history. I used to go to some of the caves because they had cave drawings still up. You can go see them. It's, it's pretty cool. But no, it's an actual tribe. They're still there. The tribe still exists. Very small. But it's Yavapai. Not Yavapai. Why they didn't come up with a you know South Beach strap match or some shit? Seminole? I don't know. Yeah, they could have gone with a Seminole strap match. I don't know why they didn't. I didn't come up with it. I, I, I guess because it probably happened before, like probably Wahoo McDaniel or somebody had a Yavapai strap match and somebody thought it sounded kind of exotic and cool. And somebody remembered it in a meeting and go, oh, yeah, we'll do one of those. We've got to call it something. Let's call it that. Fair enough. Uh, too okay. bad you weren't there, George. Well, we are going to take <laughs> one last question from the chat. Junior Masada wants to know, Aaron, what are your thoughts on the empty arena shows that are going on now with WWE and AEW? What do you think they're doing well? What could be done better? Thoughts on this? Um, I think AEW is doing a great job. I think WWE missed the mark first couple shows. And I almost almost picked up the phone to call someone and say, hey, maybe you just want to think about this. Here's my take. When you look at the WWE product in particular, it's a very glitzy, well lit. You know, the high the production values are second to none. When it comes to live event production, there is no one in the on the face of the earth that does live event production the way WWE does it. They, it's an art. Okay, that's the good news. The bad news is when there's no audience and you still dress everything up. It's still bright. There's colors, there's lights. You can see that there's nobody there, but the the venue has no personality. The venue has no character. It's a bright, multicolored, very sterile environment. And for me, it was kind of like, I I just can't watch it, right? Just because it it just tilted me too much. It was just too different. And I just, eh, I don't want to watch that. Whereas AEW kind of made the venue a little bit more of a character. And one of the ways they did it, and I, I haven't watched all of their stuff. I've, I've seen clips of it. But what I did watch, the first thing I noticed is the way they shot it. A lot of their angles were tighter. There was a lot more close-ups, a lot less wide shots. Um, to me, they shot it better. 
Don't know why, don't know how, don't know whose idea it was, don't know what the conversations were like. But when when the whole arena live, you know, live show in front of an empty arena thing came about, I went back and looked at a empty arena show or match that I had within a show that I created called Reaction. I don't know if you guys remember it, but Reaction would start right at 11 o'clock when TNA, when Impact went off the air. And it was a one-hour show. And we it, and it got as good as we were doing over a million people between 11 o'clock at night and 12 o'clock at night. Over a million with the show that cost, it cost less than $10,000 an episode to shoot. Right? Kind of proud of that. We delivered over a million people on less than $10,000 to shoot. But one of the show, one of the episodes, we shot an empty arena show. And, it, and it, I directed it. And I, and I told everybody then, you have to make this arena, arena a character. Just like, and I, it's really interesting. I hope we're not in a hurry because I'm in the mood to go in the weeds. And I've talked about this before. When people, when people say, you know, how important is the audience? Well, I've used the analogy multiple times. I said, take whatever your favorite WrestleMania match has ever been. I'm going to take Hogan and Rock in Montreal. That's, I'll just pick it, right? It's the one that pops into my head. That was fantastic. The presentation of it was fantastic. It was huge. The, but it was in large part because of the audience. The audience validated that event because you had however many tens of thousands of people jacked up, geared up, invested in it. And that, that, that gets communicated to the audience. It validates it. And to illustrate that, I would say, now, take that same match, same characters, move for move, everything is the same, but put it in a high school gym. How does that feel? What do you think of it? You, you, you would do what I did. You go, Ugh, I can't watch that. That's not right. You know? And that's what's going on now. And, you know, they have no choice, right? But in the beginning, at least with WWE, they went high production value. Because that's what they do so well. And I think if they would have darkened that arena, if it would have been gritty and a little dangerous and the lights would have been a little hotter so there would have been more shadows, it would have felt more intense. It would have had more of a fight club vibe than an empty Disney World vibe. And I think WWE did, they did the best empty Disney World anybody could do. But it felt wrong. And I, they should have been thinking more Fight Club, Dirty, Dark, Dangerous, make the venue a character as opposed to make it an obstacle. Yeah, I would have watched that. I have, a, I have a production question very pertinent to today. If you were involved in the WWE filming a WrestleMania, would you suggest that they tape both finishes to every match? Or multiple finishes to a match to keep spoilers? I'm confused. Oh, oh you mean because uh, because they're taping it now? Yes, they're taping all oh. of WrestleMania. So I'm. Um, well, I don't think it's going to be a big issue because they're doing it at a, on a closed set. Um, all of that talent is under an NDA. I don't think any of them would be willing to risk their careers by leaking it. Mm-hmm. Hope I'm wrong about. I hope I'm right <laughs> about that. I. I would just be so disappointed in everything if that weren't the case. 
And I guess they would have to, whoever is in charge of all that at WWE would have to ask themselves, can we trust this crew? You know, is there anybody on this team? And I'm not just talking about talent. Is there anybody in this building that's going to see this that we don't trust completely? And if the answer to that is maybe, then yeah, I probably would. I'd take steps. If I felt really good about everybody around me, and they all knew that there was a silver bullet waiting for them in my back pocket if they opened their mouth, um, I'd go with it. I, I, I can't make that call sitting Of here. course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we will have to wait and see if any leaks will come out. We are all waiting around in the meantime with not much else to do. However, Eric, we are looking forward to your Sting episode of 83 Weeks. And we hope that you will join us back again next week. We had a record number of people in the live chat. So thank you to everybody for hanging out with us. Follow Eric at E. Bischoff, George at G. Hermosa, and at Steve Kaufman. You can always hit me up at Christy Reports. Eric, Thank you again so much for your time tonight. Take care in all this, man. We really appreciate seeing you. You guys too. Be, stay well and uh, have fun in Minnesota. All right. Thank you so much. I will, everybody. Take care out there. And we will see you next week for more After 83 Weeks. Bye-bye. Cool. Thank you, guys. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.